0: this is a group ready to worship this morning, I see. I want to welcome everybody this morning, especially if you're visiting. We want you to know that we're glad you're here. If there's anything we can do for you, if there's any questions we can answer, please uh, feel free to ask, and we'll do what we can for you. This morning we are, if you'll look at the front of your bulletin, we're on reason number 11 of the 50 reasons why Jesus came to die. Uh, And for those who are visiting, this is a, um, we were getting this from a little book that John Piper wrote. Reason number 11 is to complete the obedience that becomes our righteousness. Second Corinthians 5.21 says, for our sake he made him to to be sin who knew no sin so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you and praise you that you've seen us through another week safely, that you provided for all of our needs, that you have brought us back here to your house where we can worship you without fear, because so many who belong to you in this world today cannot say that. We pray that would continue to be the case. Lord, we just pray that whatever you bring to pass, that you would give us the courage and the boldness to stand for you no matter what. Lord, as we've looked at this scripture here, it reminds us that we are lost, we are separated from you, we need righteousness to come into your presence, and we don't have any. And we have absolutely no way of getting any. But we thank you, dear God, that you have provided that, that Jesus Christ himself... God in the flesh lived a sinless life died for our sins and is now alive and seated at your right hand we thank you and we praise you Lord we we thank you for the righteousness that Christ imputes to us Lord because of this we can say that we know that we will be in your presence at some point in the future. We thank you, Lord, and we just pray that there's a soul in here today who is lost, who does not know you. We pray that your Holy Spirit would, would make it real to their heart, that you would convict them, that you would show them the truth of your word, that you would show them their lost state, their need for righteousness, and that you would show them that they can have that righteousness through faith in Christ. May you convict them this morning. Bring them to the cross and show them the truth of your word, Lord. May they receive this truth and respond to this truth, placing their faith in Christ For it's In his name we pray. Amen.
1: Please open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 2. 1 Timothy 2, we will read verses 1 through 7. There is an emphasis today across our country to pray for our nation, and that is what we will do. And this is a, a very appropriate text to read in light of God's call for us to pray for those who are in authority and for the nation in which we live. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7. First of all, then, I urge that entreaties and prayers, petitions and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. I am telling the truth, I am not lying, as a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Pray with me this morning. Our great God and Father in heaven, we bow in your presence. We recognize that you are sovereign, that you are the God who is exalted over all of the nations, that you are the one who has determined the existence of all nations, their beginning And their end and everything in between. And Father, as we have just read, we have been called by you to pray for all men, for kings and all who are in authority. We acknowledge that as we live in this country and we have certain leaders who are over us, that in your sovereign purpose... They occupy the leadership and the office that they have. We recognize that you are in control of who leads us, who governs us in our country. And Father, as this passage calls upon us to do, we pray for the salvation of our president. Lord, we pray that you would grant him The knowledge of the truth. That you would save him from his deception, his false profession of faith. That you would put someone in his life, O God, who would give him the gospel in its clarity and in its full truthfulness. We ask that you would save him, that you would save his wife that you would save our vice president and his wife. We commit the other members of that administration. We pray that they would come to understand that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge and that their very breath comes from your hand. And, Father, as we pray for these things, we are also very mindful of Romans 1 and the picture that it gives to us of what we see in our country, that as a nation we are suffering your very wrath, the wrath of abandonment. And, Father, that is something that grieves us deeply. We ask that in the midst of your judgment upon this nation that you would remember mercy, that you would demonstrate great mercy. That you would strengthen the church that is here. That you would give your people boldness and courage to proclaim your truth. That we would be willing to suffer for the sake of the gospel and never compromise the gospel. That you, would bre- that you would bless the proclamation of your gospel all over this country. And that you would bring many more to a saving knowledge of Christ. Father, we pray for your mercy to be poured out in full measure upon this nation. And Father, we thank you that as the church of Christ, we are the recipients of your saving mercy that you have given to us eyes to see and ears to hear, that you've given us a new heart, that you have given us a new desire for you, a longing for righteousness. We thank you, O God, that we are a part of the new covenant where there is redemption, where there is the full and complete pardon of all of our sins and where we have received the very righteousness of Jesus Christ. Father, thank you that you have been pleased to reveal yourself to us. Father, we thank you for this tremendous privilege we have to gather on this Lord's Day to once again celebrate the resurrection of Christ from the dead and our living hope that we have in him. We thank you for the Wonderful joy that it is to us to be able to sing praises to you, to be able to pray to you even now, and then to hear your word proclaimed. Father, may you bless all that we do. May our motives be pure. May we be moved by a desire to honor you and to please you in all that we do. May we desire to see Christ exalted in our midst. May you give us tremendous help. May we find our refuge in you. May we find our strength and our joy and our our hope in you today, O God. Father, we run to you, for you are strong. You are a rock. You are our fortress, our shield. And may you bless your word. May it go forth with power. May it go forth in a life-transforming way. May you write your truth upon our hearts and upon our minds. And we ask and pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior. Amen. Amen. You may be seated.
2: Dependent on your grace, keep me heart Let's now sing how deep the Father's love for us. How deep the. Father I hear my mocking voice call out
1: among the sky. That is such a, a wonderful song. And it is a joy to ask you once again to open your Bibles to the book of 2 Timothy and to chapter 4. We are in a portion of the Word of God that is extremely thrilling to my own soul. I have waited a long time to get to this portion of the Word of God 2 Timothy chapter 4, I want to read in your hearing verses 1 through 5 as we continue in our series, The Divine Mandate for Expository Preaching, part 2. Follow along as I read from the Word of God. I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, exhort with great patience and instruction. For the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. But wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth, and will turn aside to myths. But you be sober in all things, endure hardship, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. If someone were to ask you, what are the marks of a healthy church, what would you say? What are those distinctive marks which make the church faithful and successful in the sight of God? In 1997, Mark Dever answered that question in a book that he wrote called Nine Marks of a Healthy Church, one that I would highly commend to you. It has proven to be one of the very best books written on the church, and it has even become required reading in many circles of ministerial training. He states in the book that his purpose is not to give an exhaustive, comprehensive treatment on the church. For example, the book does not include prayer or worship or missions or baptism or the Lord's Supper. Dever writes, this book is not a complete ecclesiology. It is merely trying to focus on certain crucial aspects of healthy church life, note this, that have grown rare among churches today, end quote. In other words, he has chosen to write about those marks of a healthy church that tend to be lacking, that tend to be rare in contemporary churches. Here are the nine marks in reverse order. Mark number nine, biblical church leadership, that is a plurality of godly elders. Mark eight, a concern for discipleship and growth. Mark 7, biblical church discipline. Mark 6, a biblical understanding of church membership. Mark 5, a biblical understanding of evangelism. Mark 4, a biblical understanding of conversion. Mark 3, the gospel. Mark 2, biblical theology. And Mark 1, expository preaching. That's mark one. Dever says in the book, quote, the first mark of a healthy church is expositional preaching. It is not only the first mark, it is far and away the most important of them all. Because if you get this one right, all of the others should follow. This is the crucial mark. This is what pastors are to give themselves to and what congregations are to demand of them. My main role and the main role of any pastor is expositional preaching, end quote. And to that I give a hearty amen. Beloved, expositional preaching is the first mark of a healthy church. Why? Because as the pulpit goes, so goes the church. A strong pulpit leads to a strong church. A weak pulpit leads to a weak church. But what exactly is expository or expositional preaching? Let me give you several quotes that define expository preaching that I find to be very helpful. First, quoting Mike Bullmore, he says this, quote, A sermon is expositional if... Its content and intent are controlled by the content and intent of a particular passage of Scripture. The preacher says what the passage says, and he intends for his sermon to accomplish in his listeners exactly what God is seeking to accomplish through the chosen passage of his word, end quote. Stephen Cole quote, the preacher's message should come out of the text and be governed by the text, end quote. Brian Chappelle, quote, an expositor is solemnly bound to say what God says. In an expository message, we relate precisely what a text of Scripture says, end quote. A very helpful definition of expository preaching is as follows. An expositional sermon is one that takes the main point of a passage of Scripture and that becomes the main point of the sermon. That is a great and simple definition. Expository preaching is simply to preach the Bible. It is simply to explain the meaning of the Scripture. And the meaning of the Scripture is so vital for us to ascertain in the study of the Word of God. John Piper says this, the preacher's job is to minimize his own opinions and deliver the truth of God. Every sermon should explain the Bible and then apply it to people's lives. The preacher should do that in a way that enables you to see that the points he is making actually come from the Bible. The points the preacher makes come from the text, not from his own opinion, not from his own insights. How does the preacher do this? He utilizes all of the laws of sound Bible interpretation. He applies those laws to the text of Scripture. He then draws out the God-intended meaning of the text, and then he proclaims that God-intended meaning of the text to the people of God. The issue is never, what does the Bible mean to you? The issue is never, what does the Bible mean to me? The issue is ever and always, what does the Bible mean what does the Bible mean according to God? What is God's intended meaning in this given passage? The task then of the preacher is to discern the correct meaning of the text and then to clearly communicate that meaning to the people of God in his message. But there is another very critical element of expository preaching that is sometimes Not given the proper attention that it needs. And again here I appeal to John Piper. He says this, preaching is also exaltation. And that is with a U, exaltation with a U, -U E-X-U-L-T-A-T-I-O-N. It means rejoicing. Preaching is also exaltation. He goes on, this means that the preacher does not just explain what's in the Bible and the people do not simply try to understand what he explains. Rather, the preacher and the people exult over what is in the Bible as it is being explained and applied. That is a masterful way of defining biblical preaching. Expositional preaching, beloved, is expository exultation. It is explaining the God-intended meaning of the text with the aim that the people not only understand that proper meaning of the text, but that they delight in that meaning and that they are drawn to a worshipful response of God as he has revealed himself in that text. And so it's not merely acquiring more information in your doctrinal statement in your brain It is that. It is enhancing your knowledge of God. It is deepening your understanding of sound doctrine and truth and theology. But it is to do so with the aim that you are moved in response to God in worship and praise and love and adoration. Expository exaltation. That is what we endeavor to do. It is the blending of theology and doxology. That is biblical preaching. Now, as we direct our attention to the text that is at hand, let me remind you that we come to the final chapter in Paul's final New Testament letter, wherein he gives a final charge to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. And let me also remind you that Paul is writing from the Mamertine prison in Rome, which is nothing more than a cold, dark hole in the ground. It is a dungeon. Paul is facing imminent execution, thus he is writing as he stands on the brink of eternity. This is not a time to talk about secondary matters, much less trivial matters. It is the time to talk about the main thing. And that is exactly what Paul does in this final climactic charge as he ends the body of his letter to Timothy and this is really the culmination of everything that is written thus far in this final epistle. Beloved, the very heart and soul of this climactic final charge is a mandate for expository preaching, a divine mandate for expository preaching. And as we go through this text together, we are seeing Paul unfold principles for faithful preaching, beginning with Roman numeral 1. If you'll look on your bulletin, there are the sermon notes. Roman numeral 1, we looked at this last time. Paul begins here in verse 1 with the solemnity of preaching. Before Paul gives the actual charge itself in verse 2, he reminds Timothy of how serious it is to preach. The image that Paul uses is that of placing Timothy under oath before the divine tribunal to press home to him the solemnity of the task of preaching. This is extremely serious. It is weighty. It is fearful. He reminds Timothy that he must preach with two audiences in view. While he preaches to men, he must also recognize that he preaches in the very presence of God the Father and of Christ Jesus. This provides the proper God-centered focus and the proper motivation in his preaching. Timothy, as we said last time, must not be a man-pleaser in the pulpit, but instead make it his aim that he preaches for the pleasure of God, for the glory of God, for the approval of God. To further move Timothy to understand the solemnity of preaching, Paul reminds him that one day Christ will return. He will judge the living and the dead. He will establish his kingdom. And so, Timothy, when you preach, you must always be mindful that God the Father is listening, that Christ is listening, and that one day you will give an account to God for how you preach. And he again expands the weightiness of this in light of the future judgment and future rule of Christ. So the first principle for preaching that Paul unfolds to Timothy is that it is a solemn task, a solemn task. Preaching must be viewed with a high sense of solemnity, with fear and with trembling. Now verse 1 dramatically sets the stage for verse 2. The second principle that Paul gives to Timothy for faithful preaching is the biblical content of preaching in verse 2. As we noted last time in verse 2, Paul gives a series of five imperatives in rapid-fire succession, but the primary command, the one overarching command, is the very first command given in verse 2, preach the word. And herein lies... The content of the charge. This is the content of the final climactic charge. And all of the weight of verse 1 falls here on this command. Preach the word. Now these are very familiar words to us. Very familiar. These are some of the most memorized, referenced, and quoted Verses from the Bible, and their importance cannot be overstated. Kent Hughes calls this statement, Preach the Word, he calls it, quote, the signature of Christian ministry. And he is right. Preach the Word is the signature of Christian ministry. It is also the divine mandate for expository preaching. Let's look at it carefully together. The verb, notice it there in verse 2, is the word preach. And as we have said, it is a command. It is the first of five commands here in verse 2. The term simply means to proclaim aloud, to proclaim publicly. One lexicon defines it this way. Quote, to announce in a formal or official manner by means of a herald. It is to make an announcement. It is to make a proclamation. It has an official sense to it. It is done through a herald. In fact, the noun form of this verb is translated as preacher, preacher. Or herald, in fact, Paul uses the noun form of this word in 2 Timothy 1 and verse 11 when he says, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher. That first term, teacher, is the noun form of this word here, or rather preacher, rather, in verse 11. That is the noun form of the verb form here in 4 to preach. A herald was someone whose duty it was to make a public Proclamation. This word was certainly important within the community of the church, but it was also used outside of the church. Let me give you some comments by one commentator. He says, quote, "...every ruler had a herald to whom he entrusted messages and announcements. When speaking in official matters, the herald had royal authority." Heralds were under obligation to deliver the message without alteration. A herald was accountable to his ruler for the exact representation and reproduction of the given message, End quote. So this term was used in the church. It was used outside of the church. It was a very important word. And again, the noun form was a preacher. It was a herald. And the herald was the king's messenger to the king's people. The herald's responsibility was to faithfully relay the king's message to the people. He was not free to make up his own message. He was not free to alter the message that he was given. Instead, his job was to simply deliver the king's message exactly as it had been given to him. And that message, because it came to him from the king, bore the full authority of the one who spoke it, namely, the king and that is exactly the same for the Christian preacher Paul tells Timothy what he must do namely he must preach and then he tells him what he must preach namely the word preach the word Timothy like every other preacher is a man under divine authority he is under the sovereign authority of the Lord Jesus Christ He must preach, but he is not at liberty to preach whatever he wants. Instead, he must preach the word. His task is to simply deliver the message of God without deviation, without alteration of any kind. Now, it is interesting to note that Paul says preach the word without qualifying whose word it is. And that is because Paul doesn't have to specify whose word it is because he has already made that clear. Look back at chapter 2 and verse 9. Notice the reference, the word of God. And then drop down to chapter 2 and verse 15 a few verses later, the word of truth. The word of truth is in contrast to verse 16, the worldly and empty chatter. And then also in contrast to the foolish and ignorant speculations in verse 23. It is obvious then whose word Timothy must preach. He must preach the truth, the truth of God, the word of God. Also in chapter 2 and verse 13, Paul refers to God's word as the standard of sound words. And then in verse 14, the treasure or the good deposit. In closer context to our passage, Paul writes about in chapter 3, verse 15, the sacred writings, and then in verse 16, chapter 3, all Scripture. And then you will drop down to chapter 4 and verse 3, and Paul refers to sound doctrine. In chapter 4, verse 4, he refers to the truth. These are all parallel statements with the word that he gives in chapter 4 and verse 2. So what is the word that Timothy must preach, that he is mandated to preach? It is the word of God. It is the standard of sound words. It is the good deposit. It is the word of truth. It is the sacred writings. It is all scripture. It is sound doctrine. It is the truth. That is the range of vocabulary that Paul uses in this epistle for the Bible, for the Scripture. And so far in this letter, Paul has commanded Timothy many things in relationship to God's word. In chapter 1, verse 8, he is to suffer for the gospel. In chapter 1, verse 13, he is to retain the standard of sound words. In chapter 1, verse 14, he is to guard the good deposit. In 2, 2, he is to entrust apostolic teaching to other faithful men. In 2.15, he is to rightly divide the word of truth. In 3.14 and 15, he is to continue in the sacred writings. And then in 4.2, now he is to preach the word. And so as a pastor, Timothy has a multifaceted responsibility to the word of God He must suffer for it, he must retain it, he must guard it, he must entrust it, he must rightly divide it, he must continue in it, and now in the climactic final charge, he must preach it. That is the culminating and final responsibility that is laid upon him by the Apostle Paul under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And so in no uncertain terms, Timothy's chief task as a man of God is to preach the word of God. Now notice in chapter 4 verse 2 that Paul does not use the word expository. He doesn't use the word expositional and so somebody might say that what I am doing is imposing something upon the text. Paul is saying preach the word. He doesn't say preach expositorily or preach expositionally. But I would argue that this is the only thing that Paul can mean by preach the word. To preach the word is to preach it expositionally. One does not need a Ph.D. in preaching to understand that is the precise intent of this command by Paul. To preach the word is to preach it expositionally. So in its simplest definition, expository preaching is preaching the word of God. That is what it is. Faithful preaching then involves a high sense of solemnity, and it must be biblical in its content. So listen very carefully to what I say. Preaching is not preaching unless the word of God is the content of what is preached. If somebody under the banner of preaching is supposedly preaching, but they're not preaching the word of God, they are doing something other than preaching, something less than biblical preaching. The divine mandate is not to give a pep talk, it is not to give a motivational speech, it is not to tell jokes, it is not to entertain the crowd, it is not to make the people feel good, it is not to sit back on a stool and have a conversation, it is not to share stories and life experiences, but it is to very specifically preach the word. The faithful preacher doesn't look to the newspaper for his sermons or to movies or to what is trending or to the latest fads. Instead, he looks to the word of God. Again, quoting John Piper, who was extremely helpful to me. In preaching, he says, ministers are essentially brokers of the word of God transmitted in a book. We are fundamentally readers and teachers and proclaimers of the message of the book. That is a tremendous statement. Fundamentally readers and teachers and proclaimers of the message of the book. Piper goes on, the Bible is the pastor's vineyard where he ought to work and toil. It is where he spends Hours upon hours upon hours upon hours of his life engaging in the reading, the study of the word of God so that he can be prepared for the proclamation of the word of God. One of the Latin phrases coined by the Protestant reformers was tota scriptura. may not be as familiar as some of the other solos or Latin phrases of the reformers, But it is nonetheless important, Tota Scriptura. What that simply means is this Scripture in its totality, Scripture in its entirety. And as Tota Scriptura relates to preaching, the entirety of the Scripture must be preached. That is the mandate. The preacher must not only preach the word, he must preach the word in its entirety. He must preach all of the scripture. He must preach the whole counsel of God, including hard passages, including difficult truths, including those things that are not so popular. Listen, the preacher has no right to be selective. None. No right to be selective. The faithful preacher is a preacher of one book. He preaches the word of God, all of the word of God, and nothing but the word of God. Steve Lawson, who is a very gifted uh, preacher, one who has been used in my life a lot, he says this, Quote, every preacher must confine himself to the truths of Scripture. When the Bible speaks, God speaks. The man of God has nothing to say apart from the Bible. He must not parade his personal opinions in the pulpit, nor may he expound worldly philosophies. The preacher is limited to one task, preach the word. I have nothing to say. My sister one time asked me in my early pastoral career, do you ever run out of things to talk about? And she doesn't really know a lot about the Bible and theology, and so I you know, kind of laughed and, and I told her, listen, I would run out of things to say if I were just giving my own mind and my own opinion, but what I preach is the word of God, and it has no limit, it has no boundary, it is inexhaustible. My frustration in preaching is there is so much I can't fit into the message. I don't have enough time to be able to communicate everything that is in the text. There is so much here. And so I have to very carefully and wisely edit in terms of what I'm going to include and what I'm going to exclude because it is an inexhaustible source of divine truth. So I never run out of things to say so long as I stick with the text of the word of God. I agree with Spurgeon who said this I would rather speak five words out of this book that is the Bible than fifty thousand words of the philosophers. Give me five words from the Bible. I'd rather have that than fifty thousand words from Aristotle or from whatever other purveyor of human philosophy you prefer. Steve Lawson says such preaching necessitates declaring the full counsel of God in Scripture. The entire written word must be expounded. No truth should be left untaught, no sin unexposed, no grace unoffered, no promise undelivered. End quote. That is rich. No truth should be left untaught, no sin unexposed, no grace unoffered, no promise undelivered. What a profound statement about preaching. Now, it is not uncommon, as you know, in our day for a preacher to maybe begin with a text from the Scripture, but to never really deal with that text and to never really explain the meaning of that text to the people. I can't tell you how many times I've sat in churches and had that happen to me or turned on the television or turned on the radio, and and that is exactly what I'm hearing. It is not uncommon for preachers to make the text say what they want it to say, to impose their ideas, their opinions, their thoughts upon the text. It's not uncommon for them to make the Bible say what they want it to say rather than what God intended it to say. But, beloved, that is not faithful preaching. That is not faithful preaching, that is a miscarriage of preaching, that is an abuse of the sacred task of preaching, it is a pulpit crime for which the preacher will give an account to God. John Stott, quote, we have no liberty to invent our message but only to communicate the word which God has spoken and has now committed to the church as a sacred trust. End quote. So I don't have the right to say what I want to say. I'm a man under divine authority. It is not my opinions, it is not my experiences, it is not my insights that I am to preach. I am to preach the word of God, and so is Timothy, and so is every other faithful pastor. The preacher's message must be God's message. What he says must be what God says if he is going to be faithful in his duty. There are many people who are very good public speakers who are master storytellers, who are very capable at stirring people's emotions, even able to bring them to tears. But if the Bible itself is not central in what they say, it matters not how good of a speaker that person may be. It is not faithful preaching. For the preacher to be faithful, I am belaboring this point because it's so important for the preacher to be faithful The main point of his message must be the main point of a given passage of Scripture. And that is what he must communicate with clarity, with passion, with conviction. Listen to what God himself says about preachers in Jeremiah 3.15. Just listen. You don't have to turn there. God speaking, then I will give you, speaking to Israel, then I will give you shepherds after my own heart who will feed you on knowledge and understanding. A faithful shepherd, a faithful leader of God's people is one that feeds the people on knowledge and understanding of God's word. This is the kind of preacher that God affirms. This is the kind of preacher that is after God's own Now, one of the distinctives of Grace Baptist Church, as you well know, is expository preaching. We have this listed as one of our ministry distinctives in our documents on church membership. If you've read through that, we have a lot of very important information there. And we have a list of ministerial distinctives or ministry distinctives, things that we are maybe different in in, in relationship to some other churches. And one of these is expository preaching. Let me remind you what we have written in that paragraph about expository preaching. Because the Bible is the inspired, infallible, sufficient, and authoritative Word of God, it should be understood and obeyed by the Lord's people. The best way to accomplish this in the corporate worship of the church is to preach through the Bible expositionally. And I have cited 2 Timothy 4 2 in parentheses. This is primarily done through sequential, verse-by-verse exposition of books of the Bible, but can also be done through topical exposition, i.e. what the Bible says about any given topic. And so there is our short little paragraph on our affirmation of this ministry distinctive of expositional preaching. Now, as we have written in that statement, the primary way to do expository preaching is to do so sequential, verse-by-verse exposition of books of the Bible. That is how we have written it. You simply choose a book of the Bible, you begin preaching in the very first verse of that book, and then you continue verse-by-verse, sequentially, chapter-by-chapter, until you complete that book and then once you've done that you choose another book and repeat the process begin in the first verse go to the next verse the next chapter all the way through until you complete that book in your preaching series now this way of handling preaching should be in my opinion obvious it should be obvious This is the approach that you would take if you were to read or to study any other kind of book, except, of course, things like reference books or encyclopedias or dictionaries. Those were not intended to be read from beginning to end. They're simply to be referenced as needed. But when you think about any ordinary book other than reference books, the way it is written, the way it is intended to be read and studied and understood is by beginning at the beginning, And reading it through until you get to the very end. That is a very obvious way that you read any other kind of book. Take, for example, Pilgrim's Progress by John Bunyan. If you've not read that, I commend it. If you've read it, read it again. It is a tremendous, tremendous book. And John Bunyan wrote that book to be read from the beginning all the way to the end. And so if we were to have a little class on Pilgrim's Progress, and if we were to read that book and study that book together, in the very first meeting that we had together, we would begin, obviously, in what chapter? Chapter (laughs) 1. Chapter 1. We would begin at the beginning, and then we would go to chapter 2, chapter 3, all the way through until we finished the book. We wouldn't say, okay, here's our first meeting in our Study of Pilgrim's Progress. Let's begin with a little phrase in the third chapter, and then let's read a paragraph in chapter 15, and then let's go back to chapter 7 and read a little sentence here. That is not the way you want to read any kind of book that was intended to be read from beginning to end. And the same is true for the books of the Bible. If you want to understand, for example, 2 Timothy, you start where? In the very first verse, chapter 1, verse 1, and then you read through and you study the rest of the chapter verse by verse. You do the same thing in chapter 2, do the same thing in chapter 3, and then you do the same thing in chapter 4 until you complete the book. And so this is the primary way that the preaching of the word of God is to be handled. It is sequential, verse-by-verse exposition of books of the Bible. But as our statement on expository preaching says, this isn't the only way. This is the primary way. This is the richest and the best way, but it is not the only way. We also have written in our ministry distinctive this. Bible exposition, quote, can also be done through topical exposition, i.e. what the Bible says about any given topic, end quote. For example, we did this in our series on the love of God. And so when we finished Ephesians, before we got into 2 Timothy, we took a little break from studying a book of the Bible, and we addressed the topic, the love of God. But what we did was with that topic is go to all of the relevant passages in the Bible and expound upon those verses as they relate to our understanding of the love of God. And therefore, it was a topic, but yet it was expositional. When our series on 2 Timothy is done, I will probably do the same kind of thing. I'm leaning toward a series on the worship of God. That is a topic, but what we would do is take all of the relevant scriptural material and expound upon that as it relates to the worship of God. And so again, I'm trying to make this distinction that the primary way you do Bible exposition is through sequential, verse-by-verse teaching through books of the Bible, but that does not exclude doing a topical exposition, addressing a topic, and bringing the Word of God to bear on that topic But there's the key. It must be the word of God that is being brought to bear on that topic. Not the insights of men, the stories of men, and all of that kind of thing. So whether it is sequential, verse-by-verse exposition, or whether it is topical exposition, the aim of preaching is always the same. It is 2 Timothy 4.2. It is to preach the word why is that because this is the divine mandate for the preacher now if you will take your sermon notes and look at the very bottom of the page i want to conclude with a quote from charles spurgeon it is a tremendous statement on the responsibility of the preacher he says quote i am content to live and die as the mere repeater of scriptural teaching, as a person who has thought out nothing and invented nothing, as one who never thought invention to be any part of his calling, but who concluded that he was simply to be a mouth for God to the people, mourning that anything of his own should come between. That is a tremendous statement. And that reflects the divine mandate to preach the word in its entirety and nothing but the word. Our Father, we thank you for your word and we thank you for this mandate that is so clear and so compelling that the preacher, the teacher, is to give himself to this singular task of preaching your word. Father, we thank you For your word, that it is inspired, that it is infallible, that it is sufficient, that it is authoritative, and that when your word is preached, you are in effect speaking through the preacher. And Father, what a solemn. Responsibility, that is, as Paul has communicated to Timothy. It is a solemn charge. It is one that we do in your very presence, in the very presence of Christ. It is a charge for which we will give an account. Father, not only is, impor- not only is it important for what the preacher says and the content of his preaching it is vitally important for how we hear and for how we listen and for what we do with your word as it is brought to our attention. Father, may you deepen within us a love for your truth, a desire to know it as much as we possibly can with the help of your Spirit, And not just to know it intellectually, but to delight in it. And to be moved in worship by what we come to understand in your word. That what we do as we gather here would not just be an expansion of our knowledge, but it would also be the deepening of our worship. Father, may you bless our endeavor to expository exaltation. That this is about worship. It is not merely about communicating data. It is about obtaining a higher and deeper knowledge of you and responding to you in a greater way. Father, may this mandate be pressed deeply upon our hearts and may you expand this understanding of preaching all over this land. Father, we simply want to repeat your truth, not ever attempt to invent anything to say. Father, thank you for our time together. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your mercy and grace, which are ours in fullest measure in Christ. And we pray this in the name of Christ, our Lord. Amen.
2: Amen.